Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, Let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, Suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, Let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. The word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. My name's Eric. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'd love to do so this morning. I have one more announcement, if that's okay. Okay, nobody said no. <laughs> and it has to do with pie. So in a few weeks after Thanksgiving, our uh, tradition here is to have something we call pies giving. So we extend... Uh, the eating and the joyous festivities with pie after the service, but that requires all of us to bring some pie to share. So right now, the sign-ups are a bit slim. Just want to remind you to check your e-news. It's on there. There's a picture of pie, easy to find. Click that link, and you can sign up to bring sweet, savory, whatever you'd like, and we're going to enjoy pie and some pour-over coffee. Um, after the service in a few weeks. 
So this fall, we've been studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. We've been asking the question, how does Abraham's story teach us to live by faith? And one overarching lesson that has been clear thus far is this. Living by faith was not easy, was not straightforward for Abraham. He struggled, he doubted, he failed, he wrestled. All regarding whether he could trust God. Yet it was through his struggling, through his failing, through his wrestling, even through his skepticism, all of it. God was working to build in Abraham a refined and tested and maturing faith. And we've seen this is the same path for us. If we are to seek to live a life of faith, of trust, of reliance, of dependence upon God, it's not a straight and easy path. What's more, we've seen that at the times when Abraham's faith was wavering and vacillating and fading, we've seen time and time again that instead of going off by himself and trying to work it out, he brought all of this to God. He struggled with God. He wrestled with God. He voiced all of his questions and doubts to God. We saw this in chapter 15 and 17 when he would say things to God like, what can you give me, God? I don't have anything yet that you promised. And he would suggest to God, hey, you said it this way. How about you try it this way? All this stuff he worked out wrestling with God. Now, here in our passage this morning, and I want to invite you to have it out, we're going to walk through this in some detail this morning. This is another one of these moments. Abraham seems to almost be arguing with God, right? He's going back and forth in a very unique passage in the Bible. Clearly, Abraham is struggling with another aspect of his faith, of trust in God. What is it? If you look at verse 25, he articulates it there in a question. He says, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? What's going on? Abraham is struggling to reconcile his faith and trust in God with God's judgment. He's struggling to trust God knowing that God is a God of judgment. In verse 20, God tells Abraham, if you look at verse 20, he's telling Abraham this. He says, the outcry against the city of Sodom and, and Gomorrah is included in there as well. He says, it's immense. Their sin is extremely serious. I'm going to look into this. And in verse 22, there's these three companions. One is clearly the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself in some physical manifestation. There's two other mysterious figures as well. We come to find out these are the angels. These angels are with the Lord. They turn and they go to this city, Sodom. And Abraham knows what this means because he knows what's going on in Sodom. And he's like, judgment is coming. And he's unsettled. He is uncomfortable with this. And I would ask all of us here this morning, isn't this how most of us feel? 
Okay, we're reading this passage. We know what's coming. Maybe you know the story. It's not going to end well for Sodom. There will be judgment. This is a story of judgment in the Bible. When we come to these stories, when we see an instance of God's final judgment breaking into history, into the present, and being carried out, how do you feel when you read these stories? As we're trying to reconcile our faith in God, our trust in God, with the concept and the idea of God's judgment, that is one of the hardest things for us to deal with and struggle with in our modern world. In the next chapter, as I've already alluded to, we're told what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities are destroyed with burning sulfur from the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 24. That sounds, that, that's hard for us to hear. We say that sounds primitive. That's how people thought way back then. The God who promises blessing and restoration and life, the God of grace and love, is he also a God of judgment? Are you unsettled by this? Are you a little bit uncomfortable when you come to passages like this in the Bible. Even after we read the story of what's going on in Sodom, and it's pretty bad, there's violence and sin and wickedness in Sodom, we agree, it is bad, but we still feel it. I feel uncomfortable. How do I reconcile my faith and trust in God with God's judgment? And in this passage, if you look at verse 16 here, God says to himself, we get the inner dialogue of God here. And he says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I am about to do. Well, why? For a number of reasons, but we see in verses 18 and 19, look there with me. God says, in order for Abraham to be a blessing to others, to keep and teach my way, to live by faith, I can't hide from him what I'm about to do. I have to bring it out into the open. Knowing that he's unsettled and uncomfortable with judgment, let's bring it out into the open. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings as God does this with Abraham for him and for us. One, understanding God's judgment. Secondly, responding to God's judgment. And lastly, escaping God's judgment. First, in order to grasp the Bible's teaching about judgment, we have to take God up on his offer here, right? He says, I'm not going to hide from this issue. And what I want to say to you is we can't either. I'm going to ask you to think, especially in this first point, think hard, think carefully about this. We have to be willing to examine and think and probe this gut reaction we have as to why we're so uncomfortable When we read about the judgment of God, sometimes Christians give very inadequate and shallow answers to this. Something like, God is holy, he can do whatever he wants, so just deal with it. And that doesn't doesn't satisfy, that's not enough. Or sometimes we just want to hide from it and we only want to talk about God's love, kindness, and ignore passages like this. Will you think with me? If you are bothered at all by the idea of God's judgment, will you think with me through this passage? First thing to think about, to understand God's judgment, is that judgment is necessary. 
This is the first step. Regardless of whether we're Christians or not here this morning, we must acknowledge with this issue that we are all starting at a common ground, on common ground. We all believe judgment is necessary. Sometimes we don't realize it. Here in verse 20, God says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. Their sin, what is happening there is extremely serious. Now is the time for me to act and do something about it. All people, all cultures, all perspectives would say this, what, what God says here. They would say this about some actions, right? Some things that happen. We would say it's too much. There's an outcry of evil here, and we must act. We must do something about it. Nobody says, everybody do whatever they want. There's nothing too bad where we don't have to act whether it's the Nazis and Hitler or Stalin or whatever, we all say there is something. There is a time to act. Some things we agree upon, there's a large amount of agreement, and some things we disagree upon. But we all believe some things are worthy of judgment. Often in times or places of peace and comfort, like we largely live in now, we can try to hide from this, but in a place of war, in a place of violence, in a place of terrorism, living under oppression and injustice if you or someone you love is the victim of abuse or of a crime, we say something must be done. There is an outcry that comes out of our hearts and we say, this is not okay. Something must be done. That is a call for judgment. In a, a cultural moment now of where we want to say tolerance for all things, etc., even though we have that as kind of the underlying value, is it not true that we see and hear people outcrying all the time? Whether it's on social media or the internet or whatever, the left outcries on the right, the right outcries on the left, conservative, progressive, etc., pronouncing judgment. So what I'm asking you to do here is to think and to admit it. We all believe judgment is necessary, but... We disagree on who is qualified to judge and for what acts judgment is called for. So if we say, I don't like the idea of God being judged. I don't, it's uncomfortable and it unsettles me when I read about his judgments in the Bible and why he judges. What we're really saying is not, I don't believe in judgment. We are saying we would be better judges than God. To honestly address this topic, this issue, we have to admit it. Judgment is necessary. But who should do it and for what? God knows Abraham will struggle. God knows we will struggle. And so God helps us understand here how he judges if you look with me at verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, God tells Abraham out loud, he says, the outcry is immense, the sin is extremely serious. So the outcry, the pain caused by injustice and evil is so great, God says, I can't, <clears throat> I can't ignore this. Unlike us human beings, we can choose to ignore 
outcries, if we're in a place of comfort, if we don't want to think about what's going on over there or in that part of town or whatever, we don't have to. God says, I can't do that. We selectively hear the outcries of one group and ignore another. We wonder sometimes, God, do you know, do you see, do you hear? When we think God should act over here, when we think God should do this, God says here, I see it, I hear it, I know about it. When it is immense and extremely serious, I am aware, I will find it out and I will deal with it. Secondly, in verse 21, we see that God's judgment is based on a complete and accurate knowledge of the facts, of the action of human beings and the heart of human beings. In verse 21, we have what's called anthropomorphic language. God is talking like he is a human being saying, I'm going to go and find out and do an investigation before I even judge. That's what he's saying in verse 21. What he's saying to Abraham is, one, I am patient. I don't just fly off the handle and act before I have an exhaustive knowledge of what's happening in a situation. I patiently evaluate the case with all the facts, then I act. We have to admit, as human beings, we can't achieve this. Even when we are required to make judicial decisions, human beings can get it tragically wrong. Regularly, I just saw one of these stories this past week. We see stories of people who are convicted of terrible crimes. They're in prison for decades. And later the evidence comes out that they're innocent. And what can we say? We got it wrong. I'm so sorry. We get it wrong. So questions for you. Think about these questions as you're tracking with me here. Is it logical and reasonable to object to the idea of God's judgment? Is it empirically supported by human history to object to God's judgment on the ground that we would make better judges than him? If judgment is necessary, and we all can agree to that, and we take it out of the hands of God, either we have to do it as human beings, which ends up being hopelessly arbitrary, left to human beings, who gets to judge? Who? Whoever's in power at the time. They are the judges. What's the standard? There are changing standards of judgment going on all the time. If you lived, if you and I lived 50 years ago, what would we think is, is, is a reason for judgment and a time to act? If we lived 100 years ago, 500 years ago, it would be radically different than the things we think now. Arbitrary. Or we say the necessity of judgment is an illusion we just have to give up on, but we can't. Why? The biblical definition of judgment will help us understand why. Darian alluded to this uh, definition earlier in the liturgy. If we could put up the slide. Judgment in the Bible, Hebrew term is mishpat. We tend to only think of one side when we hear about the judgment of God, but it's two-sided always. It's setting things right. One, by appropriately dealing with what is wrong. And two, by establishing and vindicating what is right. I don't believe anyone can honestly say that they don't long for this, that our world needs this, 
Whatever it is your viewpoint is about what judgment is called for and not, do you not long for all things to be set right, for evil to be dealt with and identified and stamped out and for good to triumph and be vindicated? That is what biblical judgment is. We long for it. We can't give up on it. Even if we have a hard time accepting and admitting it. Last point here for you to think and track very carefully here on this point. Would we not prefer a judge who was perfectly just, exhaustive in his knowledge, indiscriminately attentive to the outcry against evil in our world, and patient in executing judgment? God says, I want you to understand. I am a God like this. We may disagree. We may struggle. We may object to his decisions. But this is far better than us being judge. Or there being no judge at all. God says, I'm not going to hide this. I'm not going to hide from this issue. I'm laying it out before you. Think about this. But that's not it. Point two. He's not saying, Abraham, I just want you to think. He actually wants Abraham to respond. And that's what happens in the rest of the passage. He doesn't say accept it and just go home and deal with it. He wants a response. He invites it from Abraham and us. What is it? Verse 22. The two men, these mysterious figures, go towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And now it's just Abraham and God. And Abraham watches them go, we're told, and he sees that happen And knowing what will likely happen when they get there, he is still unsettled, even though he's heard from God. Verse 23 says, Abraham stepped forward. Very significant term here. This is a legal term in the Hebrew. Abraham stepped forward like a lawyer to make a case. And God said to Abraham, step off. No, he didn't say that, right? He said, that's okay. You can step forward. Go ahead and make a case. This is what God wanted clearly all along, a response. And as we've seen many times in Abraham's story, God is inviting on his struggle with wrestling. He says, bring it to me. This is what faith looks like. What is the response of Abraham? There's three parts to his response. First, in verses 23 and 25, he steps forward. He says, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people righteous in the city? Will you sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike? You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? We could call this, next slide, the response of interrogation. If that feels too strong, you could say at least inquiring. We can go to the point two. Next slide. One more. What is Abraham concerned about? What's unsettling him? One, there are two things. What about the righteous people if they're in the city? What about them? Will they be judged on the account of the wicked? And then there's another concern he has here. What about the wicked of the city? Could they be spared? Sparing the whole place for the sake of, on account of the righteous. And is there still hope? 
for them. In verse 25, he voices his struggle over the whole thing with God. He says, far be it from you. You could never do that. You could never judge the righteous as if they're wicked, treating them the same. And what does God say to this bold interrogation, this bold question from Abraham? He says, essentially, no, you're right, Abraham. Verse 26, if I find 50 people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the entire place for their sake. He assures Abraham, Abraham, your gut response, your questions are the right ones. Bring them to me. It's right. If there are 50 righteous people there, I will withhold judgment. It wouldn't be right. And it, here we see it's okay to voice our struggles. It's okay to voice our questions to God as Abraham does. So he interrogates. And then secondly, though, he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He intercedes. He's still unsettled. That wasn't enough for him. He's like, I got to go further. He wants to press God on this more. He begins interceding for the city. To intercede is to be a go-between. He says, I'm going to go between you, Lord, the judge of all the earth and this city that I know is full of people who are corrupt and doing terrible things. He prays on their behalf. Notice here that Abraham was not only praying for his nephew, his nephew Lot, he had family in the city. He didn't say, what about Lot? Could you spare him? He prays that the entire city will be spared. He could have prayed, please just spare Lot and get him out of there. Instead, he prays for what? The whole city, verse 24. Verse 28, he's thinking of the entire city. He's interceding for a city he knows is sinful wandering far from God's will, and he says, could they be spared? He speaks before the Lord with great humility and reverence in verse 27, right? He says, I don't even know if I should be doing this. I am just dust and ashes, but I'm venturing to make this prayer before you. Suppose it's 50 minus 5. Will you destroy the city then? God says no. And in humility... He says, I'm going to take this a little bit further. He keeps going. He keeps going. He wants to know all the way down to 10 people. God says, if there are 10 people in the city who are righteous, the whole city is spared. Before we move on, just notice this point. God wants his people to intercede. His job is to judge. Our job is to intercede. Interrogate, intercede, lastly, entrust. We bring our questions to God. We bring our questions to his word. He's okay with it. He says, I'm not hiding from this. And then we intercede. We call for the forgiveness, pleading with God. That's what God wants. Then thirdly, we see, we entrust. After Abraham gets to 10, Right here, he stops. Why? <laughs> we don't know. Why doesn't he go further? Some people say because 10 is kind of the smallest unit of a, of a community. So if there's a righteous remnant community in a place, then God considers that righteous remnant as covering the unrighteous. But we don't know. One, one commentator says, and I think this is the right answer, Abraham's heard all he needs to know at this point. 
in order to trust God. There's something we could say as we learn from this dialogue that is imbalanced about God's judgment. That he is slow and patient and willing and wanting intercessors to plead for even the worst of sinners. It was very bad in Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants people to plead for them. He listens to those prayers. His desire to judge then, we learn, I think we can say this, is on a different scale than his desire to forgive. Right? Because it doesn't work the other way. It doesn't say, for 50 wicked, I will wipe out the whole city. For 45 wicked, the whole city is done. 10 wicked, he doesn't say that, but the reverse is true. It's a different scale. So Abraham has heard that, and he's able to entrust God with judgment. Abraham got to a place where he could say, I trust you, God, as hard as it is. There was a key insight, which is going to take us to our third point. That I think here is a key insight that enabled Abraham to trust in God as judge and to entrust him with that. To reconcile his faith in God, a God of blessing, a God of life, a God of restoration with the idea that God is also a God of judgment. And that was this, third point. There is a way of escape from God's judgment. Would you look with me at verse 26? Abraham hears what God says here in this verse, and this is the key. We have to carefully read and follow it step by step to understand. It says, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And he goes all the way down to 10. God is saying here, here's how my judgment works. Not only would the righteous not be swept away with the wicked, that won't happen. He would spare the whole place, everyone, for their sake. All right, let's look at this. Look at this with me. Translation of the word spare. Spare the whole place. I don't think that is a strong enough or accurate translation. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the NRSV translates this in a different way, as well as two Hebrew scholars I greatly respect, Dr. Robert um, Alter from Cal Berkeley, maybe some of you had him as a professor, and a good friend, Danny Park, who's out here, who knows this language very well. But spare is not strong enough. It should read Forgive. I will forgive the whole place for their sake. And look at the phrase, for their sake. This is the same word Abraham used. If you remember the story a number of weeks ago, he told Sarah, hey, lie and tell everybody you're my wife because I don't want to get killed. They're going to take you and kill me. He says, my life will be spared on your account for your sake. He's not saying... Lie and pretend you're my wife for your sake. It'll be good for you. He's saying, it'll be good for me if you do this. So he's saying, do this for my good on your account. What you do, who you are, Sarah, will spare me, Abraham. Let's put it all together. Verse 26, God is saying, I will forgive the whole place, everyone, on account of the righteous people in it. 
the righteousness of the few in the city, somehow God, God is saying it is imputed, it covers over the wickedness and the unrighteousness of the many. That is the escape. Okay, I know that was step by step, trying to think through that. We've been thinking hard, but let's just imagine this with me. Imagine this illustration. You're in a courtroom. We're in a courtroom now. <laughs> There's one group of people over here. Say there are 100 people charged with the crimes of Sodom. What are those crimes? You can read about them in the next chapter. Violence, murder, rape, and more. And the evidence, it's not a question. It's irrefutable. These 100 people are guilty. Then you have other people from the city out in the audience in the courtroom watching the trial. The judge pronounces the verdict. He says, not guilty. On account of those 10 righteous people who also live in the city. And the prosecutor of the case says, what? <laughs> How is that right? How is that just? And God has flipped the tables here. We read this passage and we read these stories and we go, the judgment of God is too much. It's too, how can you be just to judge people, God? And God is doing something here that blows our mind. It's hard to accept God's judgment, but isn't this maybe even harder to accept? The judge says the righteousness of the 10 is stronger than the wickedness of the 100. He's saying that. And so the window of repentance is extended for the unrighteous and the wicked on account of the righteous. Seems like he's saying that. But what about the consequence they deserve? What if it was just five righteous people? What if it was just one? Would that have been enough? We're left to wonder. Now, on one hand, as we're taking all this in, we might say, that helps. But maybe that's too far. How can God be the just judge of all the earth and justify, declare these people righteous, those whose lives do not deserve that verdict? Friends, this story introduces this tension that goes throughout the heart of the biblical story. This is at the heart of the Bible. As the story moves forward from here, this interaction right here reframes the story. The question becomes, will there be a righteous remnant? Enough of a righteous remnant. Their righteousness is strong enough, powerful enough to spare the wicked, to provide a way of escape for God's judgment for all who deserve it, to intercede for them. For Sodom, the answer was no, but what about for everyone else? Who is righteous enough? How many do we need? This tension this imbalance, we, would, we could say, in God's judgment is only resolved in Jesus Christ. In the gospel, the gospel says this, we are forgiven and spared from judgment on account of the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ. Received by faith, his righteousness is enough to cover all of our sin. Would you please put up... Um, the slide from Romans 5. Romans 5 says it like this. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also, through one, one righteous act, there is justification or righteousness leading to life for everyone 
For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, were all sinners deserving judgment. So also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came, and what happened? Trespass was multiplied. Sin was multiplied. We were all guilty, deserving of judgment. But when that happened, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even as sin is multiplied, and the Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. All our righteousness is like filthy rags. Judgment is deserved for all. What is the response? Grace abounds even more than that. Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which covers us. We call this vicarious substitution. The heart and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Jesus bore the judgment we deserve in our place. So God is just. He did something about the evil and the wrong in the world. He took it on himself. God is just. And Jesus lived a righteous life on our account. So God is justifier. We are forgiven for his sake. Three very quick implications of this. Thank you for thinking with me through this passage. The outcome is it takes us straight to Jesus. We struggle with God's judgment. We struggle with trusting God when we see judgment is a reality. But here we see the way of escape, the way of grace, far abounds over the effects of sin and unrighteousness through the righteousness of Jesus. So what is the effect on people who believe this? Three quick things. For those who are spared judgment, who are forgiven not because of their own righteousness, but for the sake of another's righteousness covering them, the eternal Son of God, three things happen. One, they are cured of judgmentalism. How can I judge others when I have escaped God's judgment based on the righteousness of another? And so we say, my Christian friends, how am I playing judge over other people's in my life? How am I playing judge over individuals and groups? And we say, we cannot do that. We are cured of judgmentalism because it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of another that saves us. Secondly, We have a growing compassion on others to intercede for them. It's not just, I got to escape, that's good, but a heart for others to as well like Abraham. And so we can ask ourselves, what do I find happening in my heart more, judgment or intercession? When there's evil, when there's wrong that I think needs to be addressed, when I think, God, where, where are you, what are you doing? Is there judgment against peoples and groups? Or is there intercession? God's role is to judge. Our role is to intercede. And lastly, we can trust a God who took judgment for us 
to forgive us. When we struggle with his judgment, we say we can trust you. Because you're a God who made grace abound all the more to us by taking the punishment we deserve upon yourself. We can trust a God like that. We just sang it. I think there's one more slide here. Just close with this. We just sang this a few moments ago. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Let's look to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you. Even when we struggle with the idea that Yes, you are a God of love and grace and blessing and restoration and mercy and compassion and also a God of judgment. We struggle to reconcile those things, but thank you. Thank you for making a way. In Christ, the righteous one, so that we don't bear our own judgment that when we are honest, we know we deserve. But instead, you have taken it upon yourself in the person of Christ. May that help us trust you and may that make us let go of judgmentalism and be people and be a church that is interceding, interceding for those who need to hear the message that grace abounds all the more, that sin does not have the last word, but the righteous one, our Savior Jesus, does. We thank you for him, and we praise you, and we pray in his name. Amen.